Uh, over the next three services, so today, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, I'm going to be speaking on the, the, the last seven words of Jesus from the cross, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. We're going to be looking at them, the first four this morning. Um, and we're gonna look at them chronologically. Now there's a little bit of a debate as to the chronology of, of these sayings, but I think most scholars believe that what Jesus said, these seven sayings happened in this way. The first was, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Second one was to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The third was to Mary, behold your son, and to John the beloved disciple, behold your mother. The fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the four that we will deal with this morning before our communion service. On Good Friday, we'll deal with I thirst, and the most wonderful three words in the English language is one word in Greek, it is finished. It's finished. And then on Easter Sunday, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So that's the trajectory for the next week, and I, I trust that as we study these words of Jesus from the cross, it will enrich our understanding of the cross and it will bless us. So let's just ask God's blessing on our time now as we turn our attention to the word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this momentous week that we are about to enter as we remember the death and the resurrection of our Savior. Father, I pray that as we study these words, these seven words that the Holy Spirit included in, in our scriptures, that we would be challenged, enriched, comforted, edified, blessed. That our perspective, our understanding of the cross would be impacted and more particularly, that our understanding of what it means to pick up a cross daily, to die to self and follow Jesus. I, I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to understand more fully, more completely, and give us a will to follow in the footsteps of Jesus more completely, I pray in his name, amen. So before we begin, it's important that we just sort of stop and, and think about where we are at this time. The triumphal entry has happened. Jesus has been teaching in the temple for about a week. The night before his crucifixion, he is betrayed and he is arrested. He's been tried before the Sanhedrin. He's been beaten before Caiaphas for claiming to be God. He has been taken and paraded before Herod Antipas. He has gone back to the Sanhedrin. He has now be taken to stand in front of Pilate for this kangaroo court. Pilate finds him to be innocent of any crime, but nonetheless condemns him to death. Pilate's soldiers have punched, have mocked, have spat upon, savagely beaten, and flogged Jesus. His beard has been ripped out in clumps. A crown of thorns has been pushed down into his scalp. By nine o'clock, he is at the place of the skull, which is now a bus terminal in Jerusalem. He is stripped naked. Nails are driven through his hands and his feet. He's hanging on a cross between two convicted felons. 
He's being mocked at, laughed, taunted, and ridiculed by the people and the religious rulers who are there to watch the spectacle. And this is Yahweh. This is Israel's God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. This is the one who created the world. This is the one who spoke to Abraham, called him. This is the one who spoke to Moses. This is the one who led the children of Israel through the wilderness. This is the one who met with Joshua. This is the one who was worshiped in the tabernacle. This is the one that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter six, high and lifted up, whose glory filled the temple. And Matthew tells us, Matthew 26, 53, that Jesus could have spoken a word and called 12 legions of angels to destroy his enemies, but he didn't. Instead, what he said is so profound and so beautiful that it bears our attention. And although we're not gonna deal with these as, as we normally do working through a passage of scripture, we're gonna be looking at individual passages of scripture in all four gospels. To understand what Jesus did say, but as I said in my prayer, to also understand how his words inform our understanding of what it means to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and let me begin by reading for you from verse 32 through 34. Luke 23, 32 says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first words out of Jesus' mouth as he is being nailed to that cross, he has carried, at least he has tried to carry the cross beam which he was tied to from Pilate's headquarters. He stumbles and falls. And so he is helped to the place of the cross. He is laid out on the cross at Golgotha. And he is nailed, hands and feet. He is lifted up and that crossbeam is set upon a post that was already established there for crucifixion. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are words of grace and mercy and pardon and clemency and forgiveness. Now sometimes people will say that Jesus said this because he knew that the Roman soldiers didn't understand what they were doing. These Roman soldiers were simply following protocol. They had been told by their superiors that this man was a criminal. This man had done things worthy of death. This man should be subject to the full weight of the law, of Roman law. And they were simply doing what Roman soldiers did to criminals. But I want you to turn with me to a passage in scripture which we're gonna look at a couple of times in this next study. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter two, in verse eight says this, and I think it's important you turn there and you look at what 
the apostle says. Let me read from verse six, 1 Corinthians 2, verse six. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see that? It wasn't that the disciples, or it wasn't that the, the Roman soldiers were ignorant of what was happening. The disciples were ignorant of what was happening. Caiaphas was ignorant of what the triune God was about to accomplish in these next six hours on the cross. Herod, Pilate, none of them understood, and the demons of hell didn't understand. No one understood what God was up to in this moment. No one understood. Only the triune God knew what he was about to accomplish in these next six hours on the cross. So Jesus is not offering forgiveness because people didn't understand. He's not saying, Father, forgive them because they're clueless as to who I am and the significance of what they're doing. What Jesus is expressing is the heart of God for lost, rebellious sinners. Jesus is living out what he came to earth to accomplish. He is, he, is, he is speaking out. He is articulating what it is that he came to earth to accomplish. In the incarnation, the God of the universe became like us in order that we might be forgiven and be brought back into relationship with him. From a human standpoint, I can't think of 10 words in all of human history that are more incongruous and incompatible with this particular context. Like, can you think of a sentence that is more incongruous or out of context than this? Jesus is being nailed to a cross. He is hanging there naked in a public, it was at a crossroads. They, the Romans crucified people publicly as a deterrent where people would see him. And there he is, humiliated, in agony. And the first words out of his mouth were about forgiveness. Now, in some senses, this shouldn't surprise us. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said is shocking. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, when Jesus preached that, when he taught that in the Sermon on the Mount, hearing it conceptually, hearing it as a concept, and hearing it in reality are vastly different things. In the first instance, to hear it, hear it preached, hear it taught, is to allow noble and altruistic values to sort of sweep over you. A selfless ideal that everyone admires. But in this instance, it is radical. Because it's not 
words being preached, it's not an ideal held up as something that we should aspire to. It is God in the flesh being mocked and ridiculed and tortured, actually forgiving, it's radical. And it's what he calls us to. It's what he calls us to do. When we pick up our cross daily and follow him, like it's, it's not just this concept, it's, it's not just this ideal that is noble and righteous and good and something that we should aspire to. It is a radical concept of forgiveness, of praying for those who are your enemies and loving those people who persecute you. It's forgiving the unforgivable. You know, it's one thing to agree with the nobility and the virtue of an altruistic ideal. It's an entirely other thing to live it out when we are being persecuted, when we are being hurt, when we are being shamed. But it's what the call to follow Christ looks like. How do you forgive the unforgivable? I think the only way that we can even begin to live out this kind of radical forgiveness is to remember what Jesus said to that prostitute when he was in Simon the Pharisee's house. And I don't have time to walk you through the story. But at the end of the story, he says this. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. This prostitute understood the depth of the forgiveness that she had received from the Lord Jesus Christ and as a consequence, she was able to live a life of love, a life of forgiveness, a life of mercy, a life of turning the other cheek. You know, that's why Easter is so important. That's why the cross is the foundation of our Christian faith. Because until we grasp what it is that Jesus did for us, it's really impossible for us to give it away in any meaningful way. Yes, we can all nod our head and speak about the virtue and the nobility of, of, of the ideal of forgiveness, but you'll never do it radically until you understand what Jesus did for you on the cross of Calvary. And when you get it, when you grasp your sin and what it took for him to forgive you, the price that he paid, Yahweh on the cross, the creator on the cross, so that he might bring you back into fellowship with him. When you get that and the depth of your sin grips you, you're willing to give the grace that you've received to other people. That's why Easter is so important. That's why the cross is so critical. When it's time to forgive the unforgivable, when it's time to live out this radical forgiveness, what the Holy Spirit always does is he drives us back to the foot of the cross and he causes us to see our sin, the sin that put Jesus there, 
And when we see him on the cross, forgiving another becomes possible by his enabling grace. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. Let's, let's keep reading from verse Luke, two, uh, Luke 23, verse 39. Well, actually, let's go back up to 34 and keep reading from there. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hang, uh, one of the criminals who were hanging railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? That word railed there really means blaspheme. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for our, uh, we, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And here's the second word of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Interesting, Matthew tells us, Matthew 27, 44, tells us that both of these guys were reviling and blaspheming Jesus. These two thieves, these two condemned men were mocking and ridiculing him. And you can understand their mindset. There they are in the, the most desperate situation of their lives. They know that he has done miracles. They know that he has fed 5,000. They've heard about Jairus' daughter. They just remembered, they heard about what Lazarus and that whole story. They knew that he claimed to be Messiah. And there they are with him suffering on the cross. And they're saying, please, get us out of this. Save us, save yourself. They were desperate. They were blaspheming and cursing him. Get us down from here. And then at some point, early in this crucifixion story, one of them has a change of heart. And he recognizes two things. He recognizes first that he is a sinner. He's there because of his behavior. He is there suffering justly. But Jesus is innocent. And he simply says, remember me, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says these words, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know if you've, do you, have you, do you ever listen to Alistair Begg, the preacher? Yeah, I listen to him. YouTube, I was gonna show it, but I thought I can't show another preacher preaching when I'm trying to preach. Plus, he's a better preacher than I am. It would just make me look bad. So, but at YouTube, um, the man on the middle cross. Have you seen it? It's, it's, it's really good. But Alistair, um, Alistair, he's a Scotsman, and uh, he, he tells a story about this, this guy who was, who was cursing Jesus. And he says, I can't wait to get to heaven to find that guy and, and ask him, 
how did you get here? How, how in the world did you get here? You were cussing them out. You'd never been a member of a church. You'd never been baptized. You'd never studied the catechism. You'd never prayed the sinner's prayer. How in the world did you get here? And then he says, the angels must ask the same question when he got to the pearly gates. They looked at this guy. Said, how do you get here? And the guy says, I don't know. I don't know. And so, not being able to figure this out, they call a supervisor angel and says, look, we just got a few questions for you before we let you into heaven. We just wanna ask you specifically, first of all, about the doctrine of justification by faith. And I, I've never heard of it. Okay, well explain to us the doctrine of scripture. We'd like to know that you believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture. And he just stares. And so the, so the angel says like, well why are you here? And the thief in the middle cross says this. The thief on the cross says this, I'm here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Like it's radical grace. He's blaspheming Christ. And because God in his mercy changed his heart, he was able to see his sin and the perfect innocence of Jesus. And there he is today in the presence of God by grace, all of grace. The man on the middle cross said I could come Grace that is absolutely unmerited, undeserved, and unearned. If there's anything that this second word of Jesus teaches us is this, that when our life is over, there is a paradise waiting for us. And secondly, the only way that we will ever get there is by his grace. And his grace alone. We can't earn it. We can't do anything to merit it. There's no amount of altruism or giving or good behavior that can earn heaven. The only way a man or a woman ever enters into the presence of the living God is trusting completely in the finished work of Jesus. They're able to say with absolute certainty, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It's all of grace, not as a result of my works, so that I have nothing to boast in. I think about how these two thieves ended their days. Jesus had just cried out with a loud voice and he'd yielded up his spirit. The Pharisees and the religious rulers of Israel didn't want these three corpses on a cross during the Passover. So in order to hasten the deaths of those two that were still left, they would, or they would do this regularly for crucifixions because crucifixion, the death of crucifixion was the death of asphyxiation. The, the victim would be nailed to the cross and his feet would be nailed and in order to breathe, he would have to pull himself up on those nails to breathe and then sink back down again. Every time they needed a breath, they would have to lift themselves up on those spikes to breathe and then lower themselves down again. And they were, 
They were struggling to breathe, and every breath was an agony. It was an excruciating death designed that way by the Romans to prolong life. And then they saw one of these Roman soldiers go and take a large steel sledgehammer and pick it up, and they knew what was coming. The sledgehammer would break the legs so that these men couldn't lift themselves and they would asphyxiate. And one of those men screamed into a blank eternity. He didn't know. He had no hope. The other died with the promise of Jesus in his ears that today, in this next moment, you will be with me in paradise. My mom-in-law, as you know, went to be with the Lord last uh, Saturday morning. And I, I really hate to say this, but I love funerals. Christian funerals. They're the best. Free egg salad sandwiches. <laughs> like they are, the, like the celebration, the celebration, the hope, the joy. She spent 12 years drifting into a black fog of Alzheimer's and then she just woke in heaven. Alive, perfect, sinless, no more tear, no more suffering. And it was such a joy to celebrate her promotion into the presence of God. And that's the hope that we have as Christians because of the cross, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. She's home, not because she earned it, she was far from a perfect woman. She's home by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's home because the man on the middle cross called her and told her to come. It was radical grace. Sometime in her journey, when she was 40, she recognized that she was a sinner, that she needed a savior that her good works, that her altruism, that her kindness, that her religiosity, that nothing, nothing could save her other than trusting in the finished work of the cross. And she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved, she was baptized. And the beautiful story, the beautiful story that we are forced to reckon with when when we read this is that no one is beyond the pale. No sin. The, these guys are blaspheming Yahweh, the God of creation, cursing them out because he won't get them off the cross. He won't do what they want him to do. They're shaking their fists at God. And in his mercy, the Lord saved one of them. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what your past is. God doesn't. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven and you will be saved. The third is over in John, so if you take your Bibles, please, and go over to John 19, beginning at verse 25. We read these words. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, or Cleopas, or Clo- how do you say that word, Cleopas, he's talked about in 
24th chapter of Luke, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. When he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is radical otherness. If I was, if it was me on that cross, do you know who I'd be thinking about? 100% I'd be thinking about me. My suffering, my pain, my problem, I'd be thinking about me. It would be 100% about me. But that's not what Jesus is thinking about in those moments. He is thinking about his mom. He's thinking about his mother. And he tells his mother, mother, this will now be your son. And John, who probably was his cousin, John, this is now your mom. And what Jesus was doing in that moment was he was recreating a family. He was the oldest son in Jewish tradition. His responsibility when dad was gone was to care for mom. That is my priority. I need to look after her. And on the cross, in this moment, when all the rest of us, had we been there, would have been thinking about ourselves exclusively, Jesus is thinking about his mother and he's thinking about creating a new family. This is radical otherness, this is love. And again, it's the example that Jesus has left for us. In Philippians chapter two, which was read for us, the few verses before that passage of scripture say this. Philippians chapter two, beginning at verse three. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, in the New Testament, there are 59 one another's. 59 of them. Let me give you a few examples. Love one another 16 times. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept, for, accept, care for, submit to, serve one another. Bear with one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. The Christian life is about others. It's about otherness. When we pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus, it is about others. Remember in Sunday school, if you had those, that little acrostic or whatever they call those things for you, joy, how do you, you want to you get joy in your life? Jesus, others, you. Remember that from the time I was a tiny little kid back in Scotland. That's the priority. That's the way it works. You want joy? Put Jesus first, others second, and you come third. But what Jesus was doing here is something really, really important that we have to understand. He wasn't only just thinking about his family. He wasn't just thinking about his mother. He was creating a new family of people. You know, think about what, what he says 
back in Matthew 10, 34. He says, don't, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide families. will be father against son, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, like I came to split families. And that's exactly what happened in the, in the first century. The, the entire fabric of Jewish culture was ripped apart because of Jesus. Some said, we'll follow Jesus. Others said, no, we're staying with the temple. And the entire culture, the, the fabric of the culture was completely ripped apart. Fathers were giving up sons to the authorities. Children were giving up parents to the authorities. And so Jesus understands that there has to be a new family. And so on the cross, he intentionally, not just because he loved his mom, but because he loved us, said, you know what? You can find family outside the biological confines of a family. Now there's nothing wrong and Jesus loves families and we need to prioritize families. But sometimes, sadly, because of our love for Jesus, we get kicked out of our families, we get ostracized by our families, we suffer because we're Christians. And the beautiful thing is this, that when we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, we focus on one another. And we create environments like this environment where we love one another and we serve one another and we edify one another and we meet one another's needs and we care and we bless, we honor. It's absolutely imperative, you know, as followers of Christ that we don't see church as something that we come to on a Sunday morning to hear a sermon and to enjoy worship. We're family. We're from different cultures, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic positions, different interests, but we're family because we love one another. And picking up our cross means that we invest in this family, that we love this family, that we accept people in this family. One of the things I love about this church, and it was, it's only now becoming a reality back in Georgetown where I grew up. Well, grew up where I had 32 years in ministry. We were very uh, white, boring church. And my wife came from a church that had 52 different nationalities rep- represented. And, and I always, anytime I went there, I thought, this is heaven. This is what heaven's gonna look like. Like every color of the rainbow, every people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and ethnicity and language and, and it's a beautiful thing. And it says to the world that God is at work in us because we love one another, we accept one another, we put up with one another, we love. 
Now, Georgetown, thankfully, is starting to change, and it's neat because we're seeing different cultures and people from different parts of the world coming into our community, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see that reflected in our church. But it's that diversity and our loving one another that allows the world to know that this is not just a social club, this is a family created by Jesus. Amen? And then lastly, Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27, 40, 45, 46. So Jesus has been on the cross now for three hours from nine till noon. It's now noon. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three in the afternoon, there was an eclipse. Even secular historians write about this eclipse. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of the seven words of the cross, Jesus begins by saying, Father, forgive them. Number one, the seventh is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the one right in the middle, the fourth one, there's no intimacy, there's no familial sense of communion, It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No sense of familiarity, no sense of nearness. God is now distant, he's removed, he is aloof because the son has been forsaken by the father. Jesus wasn't so much asking a question as he was identifying with David in Psalm 22, and we don't have time to read that Psalm this morning, but if you read Psalm 22, it's basically a description of the crucifixion. And Jesus in crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is identifying with that that person in Psalm 22 that David spoke prophetically about. You see, the cross was God's plan from all eternity. But why did it have to be this way? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? There's a verse in Proverbs 17, 15, which I think I've heard people describe as God's dilemma. And it very simply says this. This is God's word. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It would have been an abomination for God to simply say to sinners, it's okay, I forgive you. And although that's a very popular concept and it was preached a while ago by a very popular preacher here in Toronto who thankfully is no longer in his pulpit. But it's just the idea that, well, God's so big, he's so loving, he's so kind, he can just turn his head and not just ignore our sin and it all goes away because he's a forgiving God. 
But that would have been an abomination to God because justice is part of who he is and the price had to be paid. But it would have been equally abhorrent to condemn an innocent man. It would have been absolutely abhorrent to condemn the righteous. So what is to be done? How is this dilemma solved? If it is abhorrent to not execute justice, if it's abhorrent to just turn from sin and pretend it didn't exist, and if it's equally abhorrent to condemn an innocent man, and there's no man more innocent in the history of the world than the Lord Jesus Christ who never sinned, how does the situation resolve itself? And there is only one answer. There is only one answer. The one who had never known sin chose to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is one of the best, this, this is a Christian classic. If you've never read R.C. Sproul's book called The Holiness of God, I would recommend it to you. It's a, it's a great, great book that I think every Christian should read. But listen to what he says. This is a longer, a longer passage, but here, here is how he describes it. The cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful, beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in history. God would have been more than unjust. He would have been diabolical to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken upon himself the sins of the world. Now listen to this sentence. Once Christ had done that, once he had volunteered to be the Lamb of God laden with our sin, then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly utterly repugnant to the Father. God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. God made Christ accursed for the sins that he bore. And herein was God's holy justice perfectly manifest. Yet it was done for us. He took what justice demanded from us. This for us aspect of the cross is what displays the majesty of its grace. At the same time, justice and grace, wrath and mercy, it is too astonishing to fathom. We call this penal substitutionary atonement and it is the absolute bullseye of the gospel and if anyone ever tells you that this transaction is not at the heart of the gospel, tell them they are wrong, because it is. God made Christ to be sin. in order that we might become as righteous as God is through him. God turned his back on his son because he couldn't stand to look at him because he carried your sin. He personified your iniquity. 
And the Bible says that God was pleased to crush him in order that you and I might be justified. You see, when you get that, and that thought by the working of the Holy Spirit grips your heart, you will want to every single day pick up your cross and follow Jesus. When you understand the price, what it cost Jesus, and we'll, in those three hours of darkness, because I think that's when that transaction, transaction happened, in those three hours when the world went dark and God the Father forsook God the Son because God the Son had become repugnant and vile and putrid because of me. When I get that, and I realize that he has given me his perfect, sinless righteousness that I'm covered over with, and we'll celebrate that on Friday. Uh, on, yeah, on Friday, When I realize what he has done for me, I cannot help but want to pick up that cross every single day and forgive and love and follow Jesus. We're gonna celebrate communion now. And I'm gonna pray and then give you a few moments to prepare your hearts to come forward and receive the elements and they'll lead us in the service. But I don't want you to come forward and I don't want you to participate unless you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that your hope rests solely, solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That your hope of heaven, that your sense of forgiveness rests completely on what Jesus did for you. You are that thief on the cross. By grace, you've come to understand some simple things, that you're a sinner, that he is perfect, and that you need him. And on that basis, we'll celebrate together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did in order to accomplish our salvation. Thank you for becoming my substitute and personifying in yourself before your Father my sin and our sin and staying on that cross until the wrath of God was satisfied. Lord, we love you. All eternity will not be enough time for us to say that we love you. But in these next moments as we take the cup and the bread and as we remember you, we do it as an act of love, an expression of devotion. And from our hearts, as a testimony of our thanksgiving for so great a salvation.